0: So my first announcement is uh, related to a new family that is uh, in our midst, and they aren't necessarily new, they've been around for a while, but uh, we want to uh, say welcome to the Colhanes who have uh, completed their application process for membership, and uh, they've been interviewed by the elders, and the elders... uh, are approving them to present to you to uh, be members of the church. So uh, you can see their picture right up there, and they're all sitting right here. If you don't know the Colhanes, you need to get to know them. Uh, part of our membership process is we we present uh, prospective members to the congregation and just ask you to, uh, to try and get to know them if you do know them. And uh, You know, if there is any reason that uh, you think they shouldn't be a member, we ask you to go to them and talk about those things and get those things resolved. And uh, if you can't resolve them, then bring it to the elders. But uh, we give a a two-week period just to kind of let anything like that be sorted out. And then after that two-week period, uh, if there are no uh, problems, we will welcome them into membership. So we are excited to have the Colhaines as... uh, Prospective members, and uh, they've been around, I think, about a year or so, and uh, I've gotten to know them, and they're they're a great family. So I encourage you to to get to know them if you don't, and uh, we're excited to have them as uh, possible members. Next thing that I want to mention is today is uh, a good day for the kids. We are starting up our children's church ministry today, and if you haven't been a part of that, there are basically two. Uh, groups that we have for the children, and after the pastoral prayer, we'll have a time where you can uh, take your kids back to uh, to be a part of that children's church ministry. If your kids are in the pre-K and kindergarten group, we're doing something a little bit different. We're asking you to take them all the way over to the preschool to check them in, and then return back here. Um, if they're in the older group, the first grade through third grade. We'll just be meeting back there in the entryway, and we'll get them all marked down. Um, yeah, so I'm excited. I get to be a teacher for the older group this morning. So uh, we're encouraged to be able to to start that up and hope that you make use of it uh, for your children. And uh, they'll be making their way back here after the service, the older group and the younger group. I believe you have to go up to the preschool to pick them up after the service. So if you have any kind of questions on that, you can... Uh, contact the office. You can talk to uh, Kristen Peterson. She is the one who's heading up that ministry, and uh, we're excited to have that. The other thing that I want to mention is the, uh, man, summer is coming fast. Have you noticed that? <laughs> and one thing that uh, that we do in the youth group, and that is for uh, those who are in 7th through 12th grade, is at the start of the summer, we allow those kids who are uh going out of 6th grade, and they're going to be in 7th grade next year. They're allowed to start coming to youth group, and we were trying to pick a date. We weren't sure, and we just had to land on something, so June 13th, which is next week. uh, If you have a child who is going into 7th grade, they are welcome to uh, come to uh, youth group on Sunday evenings, and we have a great time doing some activities. Uh, We study the Bible together. We have a small group time. Um, And I really encourage any of you going into 7th grade to start coming to youth group. Um, If you have questions about that, again, you can talk to me. I know a lot about it. And uh, we'll get you all settled. So 13th, if you're going into 7th grade, come to youth group. And if you're in those grades, 7th through 12th, come to youth group too. (laughs) All right, last thing to mention. The 20th is Father's Day. And we are going to have the... Well, the last couple of years, we've done what we call a Dads and Grads Sunday, and we are planning that again, so we're going to have a little special thing for uh, Father's Day, and we also want to recognize anyone who is uh, graduating from high school or college, so there's been a reminder in the, um, in the bulletin about letting us know if you have a grad in your family, so we're going to take a few minutes on that Sunday to recognize those graduates and also to uh, celebrate fathers. And ladies, if you have younger kids in your family, you should have gotten an email from uh, Pastor Zach, and you have something you need to do. So this is your friendly reminder to do that thing that Pastor Zach asked you to do. And if you don't have younger kids, you'll just have to wait and see. But if you do have younger kids, and you're like, I don't think I got an email from Zach. Zach, right over there. Go talk to him, all right? And if you did get that email, come on, get it done. All right. I know that's a little cryptic, but you'll just have to see. I think that's it for announcements. So as we prepare to worship this morning, we're going to read Psalm 19. So grab a Bible Open it to Psalm 19. This is a, a great psalm, and I'm sure some of the, the verses in it will be familiar to you. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you and we praise you as the God who created everything. And as we observe the natural world around us, even in its fallen state, there is so much order and beauty and complexity that, that our minds can't completely fathom it. And you made it all, and you sustain it all, and you made us, and you know us, and you have given us your word to help us know who you are and how we are to live. Lord, we thank you for your law, the testimony that it gives of your holiness and goodness. We thank you for your commands and we confess that they are good, even though we push against them because of our sin. Lord, your commandments and your rules and the fear of you truly are desirable, more desirable than anything else in this world. Help us to know that and to live like that is what we believe. Lord, this morning, we who help us to, to worship you with clean hearts and minds. You are worthy of all of our worship and praise. And Lord, we commit this morning to you. And we ask, as the psalm says in the last verse, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And these things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we are excited to see all of you here with us, All of you who are joining us online, and we want to give a welcome to you. Here at Edgewood Bible Church, we come to worship the Lord together. And if you are tired and in need of rest, if you are grieving and longing for comfort, if you have seen God's good hand in your life, if you're prospering and desiring to give thanks, if you are weak and in need of strength, if you need to know that God loves you, if you are anxious and needing to cast your cares on the Lord, We welcome you here this morning to worship with us, to sing praise to our great God, our loving Father, our humble Savior, and the Spirit who helps us. Will you please stand and worship with us?
1: be seated. We can sing that strong and assuredly, right? If you're new to our church, that song kind of encapsulates who we are and what we stand for. We, we're here to follow Jesus Christ. He is our cornerstone. He's our rock, our everything. And so now we're going to go to the Father because of Jesus Christ in prayer with needs now. So would you join me as we pray? God of Abraham, God of Israel, God of Adam, God of Edgewood Bible Church, we come before your throne and we acknowledge this morning, you've always had your people because you are full of grace and salvation and love and mercy and everything about you, God, is good. You have no character faults, you have no weaknesses, you have no inconsistencies You are all that is beautiful, all in one, all the time. And yet our lives have not reflected this the way we should like. We have lived like comfort, entertainment, and jobs and agendas and sins are more important than you. We have valued ourselves more highly than you. And for that, God, we ask for forgiveness. O God of Jacob, we long for the day that we will stop sinning forever. When we will see you, when we will be like you, and be done with sins and sorrows and stumbling and slip-ups forever and ever. And until that day, please listen to our prayers. Please hear our cries this morning for you to work in our lives and in the lives of those around the world. And Father, we look out into the world. We pray for the country of Afghanistan country that's been wrecked by war for many decades with millions perishing and more displaced in the midst of deep conflict you have saved people raised them up to serve the growing church there although most of them gather to worship underground and in hiding now we pray that you would raise up more to go there more to stay and pray for them We pray for the 70 unreached people groups in that land that soon they will have a Bible in their own language. And we do pray for their president, Ashraf Ghani, that you would give him wisdom to know how to govern this nation well. Would you soften his heart to receive the good news of Jesus Christ? Father, we turn to our own nation. We we know that our responsibility as Christian citizens in this nation is to pray for those that have been placed in leadership. And so we pray for our president and vice president. Our leaders, like all people, need the forgiveness of sins and new life that comes through putting their faith in Jesus Christ. So we pray that you would save our leaders. We know that your heart is for all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. So we ask that you would make this happen here in America. We pray for our own state and our local, our governor and our lieutenant governor, that they would be called upon to make difficult decisions that affect many people, that affect us. And so we pray that you would give them wisdom. May they not trust in themselves, but in the wisdom that comes from above. We pray for our state senators and ask for courage to make wise decisions for all people, not for political expediency. And we know that you are still on the throne. And we trust you, even when we struggle to trust the leaders that we have. And Father, we think of the many churches in our area where the gospel is proclaimed and believers are discipled. And this morning, we thank you for Rainier Hills Community Church in Buckley. And we ask for wisdom for their church family as they navigate life and ministry during this time. We thank you for gifting that church with the faithful service of Pastor Paul Majak and his elder team of Chris Van Hoof and Mark Babbitt and Mike Majak and Roy McKenzie. I ask that you would fill the believers that consume that church with grace and peace. May you be honored and glorified in their midst as they gather this morning for worship. And Father, we turn to our own church and we thank you for our church family. Father, we thank you for the gift of prayer, and it's my prayer this morning that we as a church family would be convinced of prayer, not because it has any innate power, but because you have brought us into relationship with yourself, and you've told us to pray, and we acknowledge this morning publicly that it is not the act of prayer that does any good, but the object of our prayer, we get to pray to you, we don't pray to the universe, We don't pray to an impersonal force. No, we speak to a loving father who created the universe, who created us, who sought us and began a relationship with us. And the Bible says, you love to hear from your children. So we boldly come before your throne for our church family. We want to live as if prayer really does matter. Let us worship as if prayer really does matter. Help us to not get tired of this task, but let us be convinced that the best thing we can do is not act first, but pray first. Let prayer be our first instinct rather than our last resort. Let prayer be instrumental rather than supplemental to all that we do as a church family. Please, Father, let us be a praying church. First on Sundays as we begin our our week with the corporate worship, and then throughout the week as families, and as married couples in our time in the word, help us to pray, Father. Help us to make it a priority to pray. Help us to remember all the answers to our prayers. Give us confidence every time we bow our heads and close our eyes to pray that you are listening and that you want to hear us. Not because we found the right formula or we say the correct words, but because we know, God, that you know us and you care for us. And that we can come boldly and confidently and consistently and lovingly to your throne. I pray, God, that we as a church family would storm the gates of heaven through prayer. And let us pray until Jesus comes to take us home again. And now, God, we we ask that we prepare our hearts to receive your word. That it would change us. What good is hearing unless it does that? wash us and shape us and refine us and shatter our misconceptions about you and about ourselves and that we reconstruct our values and make us different. Make us less and you more for that would be best of all. And we ask that you would do this for Jesus' sake. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, kids, you can be dismissed to Children's Church. So parents, if you could walk them back to the back. Uh, I know my kids have been looking forward to this day for some time. So you're welcome to head back there. There's teachers waiting for you. Just want to make sure, parents of the, the, the preschool, as Ryan said, we need you to walk them to the, the preschool building. And then, first through third grade, you can walk them back there. Your, your uh, teachers are there, and they'll walk you next door to the chapel. So while they're still doing that, we have a slide up here. I want to remind you again and exhort you, church family, to keep giving in, in your contributions to the church. We have commitments as a church family to many missionaries and to staff at the church. And we want to remind you again that giving is an act of worship, how we respond to God. And so you can give either online or through the church website. You can mail your contributions to the church. Or even if you're in the service here, there's a box in the back that you can place your your giving into that box. So I'm going to pause for a moment here as the kids head out. So why don't you stand, stretch out, say hello to a neighbor, and then we'll get started, all right? All right. I said it would just be a moment, so we're going to get started here this morning. Find your seats and uh, we'll launch back in. We have, for some time, the last uh, number of months, been walking through the Gospel of Luke. This morning we're in Luke chapter 11, so as you turn there, I'll begin. Have you ever talked with someone who isn't a Christian and their rejection of Christianity is that they are convinced that we are too narrow-minded for insisting that Jesus is the only way to God? Some have insisted that it's not fair that millions of people on earth who are not Christians and they're, they're good people, that they would end up in hell. They do good things. They serve others. They don't seek to hurt other people. And so they, they might say, are, are you saying because they don't believe in Jesus or have never heard of him, they won't reach heaven? There are many, and I'm sure maybe you've come across them in our world, who firmly believe that all roads lead to God. You just get to choose the road. You get to choose the one you want to travel. What matters most is that you're sincere in your beliefs. And if you're sincere in your beliefs and how to get to heaven, then you'll get there eventually. When I was in high school, we had a German exchange student that lived with us. I was in 10th grade, and our discussion a lot of that year was around that issue. Is there only one way? He couldn't understand why it mattered which way to heaven he chose, just as long as he was good and sincere in what he chose. He had attended church with us every week, but still struggled to that, even to this day in discussions that I have had with him. And he's rejected the exclusive claims of Christianity. Most of you have probably had those conversations with people. Maybe even some of you this morning believe that this to be true, that there are all roads leading to God. We can understand those views. If all religions are equally true or equally fair, then it wouldn't matter much. We'd simply choose our path and we'd do it with all sincerity. And with that viewpoint, it would be arrogant and narrow-minded to insist that there was only one right way. But what if all those other ways to God are not equal? What if some religious views of God and how they attain eternal life are wrong? And they're false and incomplete. What if every other way besides Jesus Christ does lead to hell? What if the idea that the only way to God was through Jesus Christ? And it wasn't made up by the followers of Jesus, but it was insisted on by himself. What if all of it is true? Well, here's my main idea. Here's what I want to convey this morning. The only way to God is through listening to the word and responding in faith. We will see the response of the spiritual leaders to the word being presented to them. Jesus calls them out in the rejection of him and in so doing, we learn three things. That's my outline this morning. It's reasonable to believe in Jesus. It's possible to hear the word and reject it. And third, it's easy to change the outside rather than the inside. We're gonna camp out here in Luke 11. We're gonna finish it, Lord willing. Uh, So have your Bibles open and, and leave them open. It'll help you listen as we walk through this passage. So let's dive in here. Point number one, it's reasonable to believe in Jesus. Look at 11, starting at verse 14. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. There's demons mentioned in this passage. It's been mentioned already in Luke's gospel. I want to talk about them for a moment. We need to realize this morning as we gather that that all that we see physically around us with our eyes is not all that is in the world. God is a real self-conscious being and he cannot be seen. Jesus came to earth in the flesh visible to us though. But there are angels and demons in this world. They They are real and cannot be seen by us. What are demons? They are malignant spirits that can enter a person's heart and mind and cause all sorts of chaos, even under the sovereignty of God. They can do people physical harm, as we see in this passage and others. This man was mute. He couldn't speak, couldn't convey anything, and it was done by a demon. We see some mentions of demons in the Old Testament, but the majority that we read of are in the New Testament, primarily in the Gospels. Some believe that demon activity was, was always this high, always a steady stream, but not just highlighted until Jesus came. But I'm not persuaded of that. I'm, I, I'm under the impression that there was activity, more of it, when Jesus was on earth. I believe that hell emptied out its demons when Jesus came in the flesh to preach the good news. For a sports analogy, it was a full court press. Satan emptied it all out to go after him. That doesn't mean it's not happening now, it just means that it was just more numerous then. And why do I come to that conclusion? Because of the people's response. They marvel at the exorcism. Jesus cast out a demon that was causing this man unable to talk. And this obviously wasn't a common occurrence. It wasn't like TBN on a scheduled Thursday night where the TV preacher casts out evil spirits of those that just happened to be there on stage. Jesus was out there healing a man who was mute because of demon possession and people are marveling. Yet there are others who are questioning it. They know it's powerful. They know it's amazing. But they're questioning where does he get his power from? If I were to take Jesus' words and put them in the mind, and I'd suggest don't do that often. It's as if Jesus is saying, yeah, sure, this makes so much sense. Satan would take apart his own kingdom and weaken it. That's really clear thinking. A self-respecting demon would do that. Satan's evil, but he's not a moron. See, their estimation that Jesus was on the side of Satan was logically inconsistent. They were so committed to their unbelief in Jesus that they were looking for ways to ignore Jesus' claims on their lives. A new kingdom had come because the finger of God is behind these removal of demons. And Jesus is declaring himself their king and by his power that this man was healed. This was no work of Satan. It was the finger of God. And that's an amazing phrase. The finger of God. It comes from Exodus chapter 8 verse 19. When Moses struck Egypt with the plague of the gnats and Pharaoh wanted his magicians to copy it. And copy the plague in order to humiliate Moses. But the magicians couldn't do it. And they turned to Pharaoh and this is what they say. This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. The magicians turned to Pharaoh and they preached to him that this was the power of God. And this is the phrase that Jesus uses here against the Pharisees. The same response of his religious leaders that we saw in Pharaoh. They hardened themselves. Another Old Testament mention of this phrase We read yesterday, if you're following along in the Bible reading plan. Did you catch it in Deuteronomy 9, verse 10? When Moses relayed the story of the time on top of the mountain, giving the Ten Commandments. He says, and the Lord gave me two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain. That phrase, finger of God, is a demonstration of God's power. Commentator David Gooding said, God's finger Was touching them. God was speaking to them. What they had just witnessed as was a direct, unambiguous demonstration of the Holy Spirit. Now they must make life's ultimate judgment. And they were at a point of making a decision which once deliberately made would be irreversible and would make deliverance forever impossible. Reject the Holy Spirit, call ultimate good evil, call truth itself a lie, and God himself has no further evidence left, nothing further to say. God himself is reduced to silence. These religious leaders here in Luke's gospel were tottering on the brink of judgment. The king had come, and what would they do? Jesus continues to graciously explain himself. Look at verse 21. "When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. but when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil." Satan is the strong man here in this phrase, and his goods are people of whom he wants to guard and keep. People are Satan's desired possession. And they are enslaved by sin, and some are oppressed by demons. And as long as no one comes along who's stronger than Satan, they will still be enslaved. But when someone comes along who is stronger and attacks him and conquers him, the treasures are liberated, they're free. So you can imagine the people sitting on his words now, because Jesus is saying very clearly that he is the one who is stronger. And he will conquer Satan and free his people. Jesus is claiming that he has the power to free people from their enslavement to Satan. It's as if Jesus walks straight into Satan's house and steals his stuff. And Satan can do nothing to stop him. Amen. And then Jesus lays it out even more. Verse 23, whoever is not with me Is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Friends, you do not get better by rejecting the gospel. You do not grow in health and strength and prosperity by hearing the word of God and rejecting it. It's reasonable to believe in Jesus. There are only two sides in this warfare. Jesus says, Whoever is not with me is against me. There are no other options. This world wants you to believe that there's many options. And Jesus says in in the scriptures, there are no other options. There's no third option. There's no neutral ground. There is no Switzerland in spiritual matters. There is no neutrality. Not everyone is even possessed, but, but all unbelievers are under the influence of Satan. And Jesus is working to persuade his daughters to take sides. The choice is binary. The king has come. So whoever is with Jesus will gather. And who is against him will scatter. You cannot be neutral. You cannot decide to try to clean up your life all on your own and reject Jesus and believe that you're safe. Because Jesus explains that further. Look at verse 24. It isn't quite clear if the evil spirit leaves the person or in search of a better place or is completely exercised. Either way, the journey through the waterless places comes up dry and so it returns to the same person only to find that person has now cleaned up their life. But it's inside, it's uninhabited. Their life is washed, but Jesus doesn't live there. So the returning demon is happy to find it and even calls seven friends to join him. And Jesus says the last state of that person is worse than the first. So what is Jesus saying here? He is telling these religious hearers that their self-work to clean up their life all on their own without regeneration and without the indwelling God through his Holy Spirit is fatal. They will be overcome by Satan. Anyone who purges evil but puts nothing in its place is in grave moral danger. Friends, it's not enough to eliminate sin from our lives to make a man clean and refined because he will be empty. He needs to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He needs to have God dwelling inside of him. Reformation without regeneration is empty. We need Jesus to live inside of us. All this means, friends, is you can't clean up your life by yourself. You cannot clean up your life and believe that Satan won't come in and destroy it again. You can't do it. You need a new tenant to live in your heart. You need God to dwell there. He needs to take up residence in your life to have complete control. And as unregenerate humans, we are vulnerable to spiritual forces. We were all created to be filled by God's spirit. We're not spiritual vacuums. We are either with Satan on his side or we're with God. There is no middle road. There is no neutrality with God. And So Jesus, in his marvelous wisdom, takes their foolish questions and preaches the good news to them. And what an amazing word it is. But there's even more to this verse because Jesus is implying that if we are with him, if we are with God, if we're with Jesus, we're gonna be busy gathering people to him. Look again at verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Friend, are you living with Christ with joy, trying to gather more people to join you? Or are you busy scattering people? In other words, do we try to gather people through the sharing of the gospel? Or do we scatter them by failing to share the gospel and repelling them by the way that we live? As Christians, we should be about gathering more and more because we have the best news in the world. We all like good news, right? Well, friends, as Christians, we have the best news that you can live forever with God. Is it not the best news in the world? A few of you are convinced. We have God himself dwelling inside of us and that we will live forever with him. And if we're convinced of this and charged up in this and joyful in this, we want others to join in on this. And so we will look to gather others through the preaching of the gospel. It's reasonable to believe in Jesus. And it's unreasonable to reject him. That's number two. It's possible to hear the word of God and reject it. It's possible to hear the word of God and reject it. Look at verse 27. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Well, now it seems this sweet lady is just trying to be kind to Jesus. She seems to have some belief in Jesus and what he's saying. But there's an issue here that Jesus takes head on. And these verses should be a good witness to our Roman Catholic friends. It seems there's a great opportunity more than any other time for Jesus to confirm worship of Mary in these verses. But that's not what we see here. It's a prime opportunity Jesus has been given. But it's almost like Jesus knew what would happen in the future. And he wanted to make it plain right now, right here, that family is an ultimate and worship of Mary is wrong. And our obedience should be to God, the giver of the word. When this earliest occurrence of Mary worship is offered, none other than the Son of God, the very incarnate Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, corrects this sweet lady on her misplaced worship. Because Mary, Jesus' mother, would be mortified that worship would go to her because she lived faithfully pointing to her son. Devotion to Mary is wrong. It's sinful. It's distorting to people. And Jesus wants to be emphatic here. Devotion to Jesus is right into his word in obedience. Well, Luke then changes gears. Look at verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Jesus is clear about his response to them. He calls them an evil generation. Jesus tells them the truth about themselves. He loves them by telling them the truth about themselves we all need to hear the truth about ourselves sometimes their seeking here was not sincere their seeking a sign was not an indication of their willingness to believe if there was enough evidence to be provided instead they were seeking a removal of guilt because they refused to believe in jesus and furthermore their requesting another sign of jesus was a form of tempting him if he had acquiesced, he would have supported their need to see more and prior miracles were not reasonable enough to believe in him. No further sign, though, Jesus said it would be given. Instead, he calls their attention to the story of Jonah. And, and, and so, it's, he's showing the sign to the Ninevites. Jonah's sign of the Ninevites, excuse me. In Matthew's account of this story, he makes a direct link between Jonah's burial in the great fish in christ's death burial and resurrection there's some debate about jesus's reference to three days and three nights because technically he died and was buried on friday and then he rose on sunday and that time frame doesn't allow for three full nights even three full days either however d.a carson has written it was very common at the time to count any part of a day as a complete day so three days and three nights could easily refer to parts of three days and parts of three nights The point is is this though, and it cannot be missed, that just as the fish swallowed up Jonah and then delivered him from death, so the grave would swallow up Jesus and he would be delivered from death also. But Luke here doesn't explicitly make that statement like Matthew. And the indication is that like Jonah, who was sent by God to preach repentance, who were under the threat of judgment, so Jesus here is calling Israelites to turn from their sins before judgment comes. But in dealing with people who are just wanting more evidence, after evidence, with no indication of humility, Jesus is calling them to repent directly because judgment is coming. I tend to believe that Luke and Matthew want the same thing without explicitly saying exactly the same. Because Jesus is making this parallel between himself and Jonah, and is referring to his death, burial, and resurrection, and it is a call to repentance because judgment is coming. And it's mercy to the listener. He, he, he isn't giving them another sign. He's just presenting a sign that they already had in their minds to cause them to repent and to turn in faith. And what's amazing again and again to me as I read through this is, is that Jesus somehow was able to deal with their unbelief graciously and patiently. He doesn't remove the burden but but leaves space for their unbelief. He doesn't remove the heat here. I don't know about you, but we tend not to do well with unbelief in others. We tend to get irritated. We, we, we don't like sharing news and have people question it. Pride seems to grip our hearts too soon. But God can somehow exist... And press on even when unbelief lingers. Listen, God would even allow unbelief to kill his only son on a tree. That's astounding. Jesus would deal with unbelief on this journey. And we'll see this through Luke, this journey to Jerusalem. He would deal with unbelief over and over again. And that same unbelief in him would nail him to a cross. But God wouldn't let their unbelief keep Jesus in the grave. Instead, God would raise his son from the dead. And instead of flooding them with judgment right after for their unbelief, what does God do? He offers them pardon and reconciliation. And escape from judgment in the name, and in through the sufferings of the very one that they had refused to believe in, the one they had crucified on the cross. And in that, friends, we are wholly nothing like our Savior. We want revenge when people don't believe and they're proven wrong. We want immediate justice. We want to be vindicated. We want to say, hey, look, you are wrong about God. He's right, you were wrong. But God is patient with people's unbelief. God is simply amazing in his long suffering with sinners. And we are quick. We are awfully too quick to write off people, to dismiss them. Not as worthy of our time and energy. And patience. And we have a God here who's directly opposite of us, showing us what our lives should look like and how we should deal with those who live in unbelief. Friend, if you've come into our service or if you've logged online and you are an unbeliever, you've chosen to live for yourself to ignore God's call upon your life, to repent of your sin and to trust in Jesus alone, we are very glad that you're here to hear this. Friend, God has been incredibly patient with you. And he graciously woke you up this morning and brought you here to observe this worship service with other Christians so that you could see his patience in your life. Each beat of your heart today is another beat of the patience of God in your life. He is long-suffering. He knows how you have rejected him, how you indulge in sin, how you want to live your life the way you want to live it. And he is patiently waiting for you. But friends, because I love you, I have to warn you. His patience will not always be there. His patience is like sand running through an hourglass, and there will be a day when it will all run out. And his call to you this morning is to repent, to turn from your sins of trusting in yourself, and turn to Jesus Christ and trust in him alone. You are not neutral you are not really good at riding the fence. If you're not a Christian, scriptures say you're with Satan. You have rejected the message of the Bible and you have embraced the lies of the enemy. But you've heard the gospel this morning. Jesus came to die for your sins. He came and was crucified so that you can be reconciled with God that there will be a judgment day. Jesus mentions that here for the religious teachers. Look at verse 31. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. A few moments ago we talked about Jonah. But here Jesus mentions the queen of the south. This is a reference to 1 Kings chapter 10. Where the king of Sheba heard about the wisdom and fame of Solomon. And she came to test him with hard questions. She wanted answers. And she received them in full from Solomon. And the emphasis with these two stories is, is on properly receiving truth. Either the wisdom of Solomon, the preaching of Jonah, or the work in words of Jesus Christ. The queen of Sheba traveled across the world to be instructed by Solomon, but the Pharisees in Luke 11 won't even go across the street to listen to Jesus. And he's warning his critics that failure to take seriously his teaching and his call to repentance Will result in condemnation because he is greater than Solomon and Jonah. He is saying, The king is here. Listen to me. Jesus then gives another explanation of the effect of his own gospel preaching. Look at verse 33. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no dark part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Jesus is meaning that the, the eye is the lamp of the body because it lets light in. It's allowing our minds to comprehend, to respond to what light reveals. If our eyes are good, everything can work like it should. So don't take this to, to mean light outside sh- shining out, nor reverse it. It's light shining in, allowing light to shine inside of us. Our, our eyes are windows, allowing us to see within. So imagine a house with no windows. It would be dark. So if our eyes are defective, the body, as it were, would be full of darkness. Everything in your life would be affected. And these Pharisees, as we'll see as we go down to the rest of the passage, had allowed their eyes to become evil and clouded with greed and vanity and heartless pride. And their eyes were fully dark, unwilling to listen to Jesus' rebuke. They couldn't see it. Instead, they, they doubled down on their sin. We need to recognize this morning that neither the Pharisees nor the experts of the law, as we'll see, had deliberately set out to be perverse. They hadn't woke up in the one day and said, I'm just going to be wicked. But little by little, they added to the law so that religious pride grew and they ignored God as their standard they wanted to achieve salvation all on their own and when Jesus points it out to them instead of repenting instead of looking at themselves they were filled with darkness and they became more bitter enemies against him some people here are full of light and some are full of darkness which one are you this morning How do you respond when God's word is shared, when it's taught, when it's preached? How are you doing at taking in God's word? Do you spend time doing that? Friends, it's possible to hear God's word and reject it. Third, it's easy to change the outside rather than the inside. Verse 37, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also, but give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. And this Jesus is invited over for a meal with a Pharisee, and he doesn't wash before he joins in. It's a provocative act. It's like being unwilling to shake hands with someone. And then before anything is said, Jesus talks to him. You're, you're, you're not so clean yourself. You're full of greed, you fool, is what he says. This isn't mild and gentle Jesus. No, this is Jesus ready for a fight. But the Pharisees' system of ritual cleanliness is what stinks. Jesus is saying you guys are a cup that is all clean on the outside, and yet it's disgusting on the inside. It's like a cup being washed by a five-year-old. You could see all the good side on the outside. This is why Lucy doesn't do dishes at our house. We would never invite you over. We've got to see the whole thing. You see the outside, it's easy, but it's hard to see the inside. And these leaders weren't looking on the inside. Instead, they were focused on other things, this washing ritual, which was not required by the Old Testament law. It was legalism. The issue wasn't Jesus' cleanliness, the issue was their wicked hearts. They were obsessed with the external aspects of religious life that could be seen by other people. They wanted to focus on the outside, and they completely neglected the inside. This is easily the most striking scene of hard preaching that Jesus has for the religious teachers in Luke's gospel. And he begins with a set of woes. Look at verse 42. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. In all three instances, they were good at the public show, what others could see, but deep down inside, they were wicked. They were good at tithing. But in so doing, they were ignoring their duty to love God and love others. Their outward acts made it easy for them to accomplish, but the poor, the poor people could never attain it. We'll see that more clearly as the lawyer chimes in and gets rebuked by Jesus in a moment. The Pharisees here, the first woe is the Pharisees gave their tithe, which is, is more than can be said of a regular church goer today. These Pharisees were faithful givers, but it was driven out of their legalism. They didn't want to help others. They gave to check off the box. But Jesus said they neglect justice and the love of God. These Pharisees were great givers, but inside they were failures. As Jesus, his words were so clear. The fact is they were scrooges toward the needy people, the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, the immigrant, the hurting. They looked down on them. But that's not all. They also looked for prominence in the synagogues, Jesus says. The most important seats in the synagogues were those in front, facing the congregation. And the Pharisees loved to be seen by all, dressed up in their religious garb. Friends, no one can do a religious act for the purpose of self-praise and simultaneously do it for the glory of God. Ironically, the Pharisees' very concentration in the outward observance of ceremonial cleanliness, coupled with their previous neglect of true inner holiness, made them like unmarked graves, Jesus says. Carriers now of a moral contagion among the public. Jesus is saying they are the plague. The Pharisees' religion rendered them, and those they infected, as detestable to God. Though people couldn't see it on the outside, they were dead on the inside. This was serious what Jesus was saying. Well, verse 45, one of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things you insult us. Yep. (laughs) And he said, Woe to you lawyers also. He should have kept quiet. For you load people with burdens hard to bear and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. The result of these ritual uh, cleansing was not only done to carefully create more boundaries of Gentiles but more significantly with the poor people. These now religious elite had created a fine system of moral respectability that only the rich could hope to maintain. Only rich people had the time, energy, and money to do all that this cleansing required. You can't be ritually clean and live in a slum. This was middle class spirituality and we can do the same thing here today. We can act the same way as these lawyers. What are your expectations for people? What are your expectations for people to dress on Sunday morning? Can you wear jeans to church? Maybe this conversation is outdated. I don't know. It was pretty lively in the 80s. Can you wear sneakers? Do you have to speak a certain way to be accepted at church? And what if you don't know the Christian lingo? Is that all right? What if people can barely make it to service or they can't make it because they don't have a car? Are they excluded? Are they accepted? Do we make it almost impossible for poor people to be a part of our church? If so... If we recognize it, what are we doing about it? You know, the lawyers, Jesus said, load people with burdens hard to bear and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. They will not help people. How would this play out today? Today, Pharisees might condemn the poor for their dysfunctional families, but will not lift a finger to help them. Today, Pharisees might condemn the poor for their excessive drinking, but lift not one finger to ease their pain. Today, Pharisees might condemn the poor for their laziness, but will not lift one finger to provide employment. Today, Pharisees might condemn the poor for their abortions, but lift not one finger to adopt their unwanted children. It's easy to, to grab a bottle and fill it with coins, and we should. It's hard to open up your home to a child you didn't plan on having. I'm not defending dysfunctional families and drunkenness and so on. But we cannot condemn these things at a distance. That's legalism. As Christians, we come alongside and we proclaim and we demonstrate the transforming grace of God. The lawyers, the Pharisees, are people who have the word and they hide it from people. Jesus can continue formally they they honor the word, building monuments for the prophets, but in reality they ignore God's word. Look at verse 47. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. It may seem initially unfair charge that Jesus says. Wasn't their building of prophets' tombs a sign of repentance, an attempt to make up for what their fathers had done? And Jesus says, no. The way to honor a dead prophet was to carry out his message. If Hosea said in God's name, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings, the way to honor Hosea is not build an elaborate tomb and venerate him, but to obey the words and show mercy and compassion to others. But these were the very men, the theologians who, along with the Pharisees, would charge Jesus with crimes that he didn't commit and would kill him on a cross for daring to call out their legalism and their moral inconsistency. With the same murderous hatred their fathers exhibited, they would do the same, venerate prophets and kill the Son of God. It says in verse 52, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You do not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Friends, in this, the lawyers and the Pharisees were a snare for people. They were trying to lie in wait to catch Jesus and cause him to stumble and all along the while they were causing those that they led to stumble. These men knew about God and refused to talk about him. They created a system that common people couldn't keep up. And instead of helping them, they despise them. How might we do the same thing? Maybe through the application of the word that focuses on externals and leaves hearts unchanged. Maybe by reading the Bible and applying the text to charismatics and Catholics and Presbyterians and fundamentalists or liberals or pagans. Anyone else but ourselves maybe even by reading the Bible through our theological grid first so we can say what the text does not say because it reaffirms our suspicions rather than letting the text say what it was intended to say. Friends, who in this world are we wagging our finger at instead of lifting our finger to help? How many of these woes can be applied to our own heart, our own life this morning? How much are we like the Pharisees and lawyers and we just plain refuse to see it? You know, after walking, I need to conclude here, but after walking through a heavy passage, there's a temptation to land into what you've got to do now. And you and I, if we're listening to see ourselves somewhere in this passage, the flesh will want to rise up and focus on trying to work now and earn our approval with God. Friends, brothers and sisters, Christians, Jesus is not up in heaven screaming at you to get your act together. Jesus is not trigger happy. He isn't harsh to his children. He isn't reactionary or even easily exasperated. Jesus is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture of Jesus towards his children that is most natural for him is not a pointed finger but open arms. He is accessible, friends. For all of his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, no one in all human history is more approachable than Jesus Christ. No prerequisites. No hoops to jump through. You don't need to unburden yourself or collect yourself. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come to him. And so if your response this morning through this message is to just beat yourself up and to find ways to work, to do better, to just grin and bear it, friends, stop and go to Jesus. Go to him. And we're going to remember this morning the Lord's death through a meal, through communion. If you feel broken this morning because of your sin, you need to remember this morning that Jesus was broken for you. You need to go to him. We'll spend here a moment in silence and then we will partake of the communion meal. should have uh, received a cup with some communion elements if you haven't you can right now while I'm, while I'm I got a few minutes you can go in the back there's some bags back there but later in Luke's gospel in chapter 22 talks about the last supper Luke 22:19 it says he took bread and when he given thanks he broke it and gave it to them saying this is my body which is given for you do this in remembrance of me don't don't do that yet just listen sorry I didn't explain it well enough In every gospel account, it is emphasized that Jesus broke the bread. And this is the essence. He's he's pointing to his death. And the Old Testament said it would happen that he would be bruised for our iniquity, for our sins. He would be pierced for our transgressions. He would have the wrath of God fall on him. And by his brokenness, by his broken body, jesus would win our redemption and so when he says this is my body which is given for you do this and remember it to me he he isn't saying that this bread magically becomes his body he says this, this bread represents my body it's a picture it shows us what christ has done for us on the cross the lord's supper and why we do this is to point us to a greater reality It's the reality of the finished work of Jesus Christ done for us. And so when we partake together, we are saying with our actions that we believe that Jesus died for us and we're communing with him. We are affirming again that Jesus needed to die for us. When we take that, we're, we're affirming, we're saying that by the action, Jesus needed to die for me. I couldn't save myself. I needed Jesus to give his blood, to give his body so that I can have a relationship with God, so that I can live with him. And he died for our forgiveness of sins. And so what that means is this is a meal for Christians. If you've not decided to follow Jesus, if you haven't followed him, friend, we are glad you're here, but we're going to tell you to not partake. This is for Christians. And I would love to talk with you. If you haven't decided to follow Jesus, to repent of your sins and to place your faith in him, I wanna talk with you afterwards. I'd love to talk with you, but we're asking you not to partake of this meal. So I'm gonna pray and then you can peel that top layer off, okay? So let me pray first and we'll partake of that first of the bread. Father, we thank you that we can join together with other Christians, other believers this morning to worship you. And now through this meal gathered together here, we remember your sacrifice for us on the cross, your, your broken body, your spilled blood for us. And we thank you, Lord. We remember you and we glory only in your cross. In Jesus' name, amen. So as you peel that top layer, I'm gonna read 1 Corinthians And be careful, that first layer is kind of tricky. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And now you can take the cover off the juice in verse 26 Paul writes in the same way also we took the cup after supper saying this cup is a new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me Paul ends that section For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're proclaiming something together this morning. And Jesus is coming back, friends. Why don't we stand and sing the doxology together? And then we'll be dismissed soon after. And parents, I encourage you again to go get your kids, don't leave them there. You guys ready? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures. to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory majesty dominion and authority before all time and now and forever amen you are dismissed friends